Galatians chapter 4. Well, tonight let's picture a tiger. A tiger that, by its very nature, is dangerous. You know, you don't, you don't go to the pet store and buy a tiger as your pet. It wouldn't be a good thing because the nature of the tiger, by its very nature, needs constraint, restraint. And that's why we put a cage around it. We put bars around it to keep its nature in check so that the tiger would never give full vent to its character in your presence. So there's a wall of separation. These bars separate you. Now, what would happen if you decided to remove the bars? Well, you would probably be lunch. The tiger's lunch. He would eat you for lunch. Because that's its very nature. And so the bars keep that nature in check. Now, under what conditions could you remove the bars that are around the tiger? Well, there's only only one condition. The nature of that beast has to change. The nature of that beast has to change. Now, we are, in a sense, like the tiger. We have sin built into our character and nature. We're sinners by nature. We're sinners by choice. The law, rules, regulations, ceremonies, are the bars or the cage that keeps the nature in check. But it's God's goal to remove the bars and give us freedom. Now, the only way that could happen is for our very nature to undergo changes. And so we're born with an old nature, the Bible says, which has a desire, a propensity to sin, to do wrong, a bent toward evil. But God, in redemption, gives us a brand new nature that hungers and thirsts after spiritual things, to know him, to love him. And when we are dominated by the new nature, not the old nature, we don't need the cage, the bars of a religious system, the constraints of a religious systems any longer. Now, I, I mentioned that we were born uh, with a bent. We have a sin nature. It's part of our makeup. It's who we are. It's why we need the law. It's why we need traffic laws. If there were no traffic laws, now listen, it's bad enough driving around town with traffic laws. But imagine what it would be driving without any traffic laws. Now, I know a lot of you would say, I'd like that. And that's the whole point. You, you ought to go to a country where they don't enforce traffic laws. And you'll see what I mean. And I think the best example, and I've been to a lot of countries, is India. It's kind of a free-for-all. You can do whatever you want. The, 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 the rules of the road are make it from point A to point B however you can in whatever manner you decide. Because you have to face bicycles on the same road, oncoming traffic without a lane on the same road, weaving in and out, oxen, camels, elephants. It's just a free-for-all. It's unbelievable. Every time I drive there, I think, I can't believe I just survived that drive. There are no laws. And so... We've discovered that in our country, we need speed limit laws. We need stop signs, stop lights, informational signs to regulate the flow of traffic 
so that we'll be safe. And so God has given us law. In the Old Testament, it was the laws of Moses to tether or to restrain the old nature because we have that bent toward evil. David put it this way in Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. His point is, he is a sinner by nature, by his very character. Have you ever bitten into an apple only to discover there's a wormhole in that apple? Have you ever done that? I have. Now, most of us think the worm crawled in from the outside, that it was sitting around, the worm was there, saw that apple, went over to it, started boring a hole into the skin and went into the core. But that's not how worms get there. We are told that the eggs are laid in the blossom of the apple and the worm is hatched in the core. So that the problem begins in the inside and goes to the outside, not the outside going into the inside. The Bible tells us that we are rotten from the core. We are rotten to the core, and the problem isn't what's around us. The real problem is what's inside us. Now let's get that straight. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. You say, what's the difference? Huge difference. We have a nature, a bent toward evil. As David said, I was brought forth from my mother's womb speaking lies. If you are a parent, you know this. Parents don't have to teach their children to cheat once in a while, to tell a lie every now and then. Come on, you're just perfect. Lighten up, loosen up, have a little fun. No, parents are always telling their children, you told a lie, you can't do that, that's wrong. You stole something, you can't do that, it's not yours. Parents are always bringing that child back to the value of what is right because a parent knows that there is inborn within that child that natural desire to go astray. Albert Einstein wrote something very interesting when he was experimenting and developing with atomic energy and he saw the future with what man might do in unleashing the power of the atom. He said, what terrifies us is not the explosive force of the atomic bomb, but what really terrifies us is the power of the wickedness of the human heart. Now, Paul has been going through an analogy. Let me just bring you up to speed on the analogy. The analogy is that of a child coming of age, coming into his own, becoming a mature adult, growth. In fact, he says in the previous chapter, we are all sons, that is, mature adult sons by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this is what he does here in these 11 verses. He makes a contrast between what we used to be like before we came to Christ, our B.C. days, and what we're like after we've come to Christ, our A.D. days, I don't know, or after we've come to Christ, salvation days. Before we came to Christ, we were like slaves. 
We were like slavish children who had to keep the rules and regulations in a household because we needed to be tethered. We needed to be told what to do. But now, after we have been redeemed, key word in this section, we are mature adults. The bars can be removed and we relate to God not on the basis of religion, not on the basis of ritual, but on the basis of relationship. We're not slaves, we're sons. It's not slavery anymore. I have to do it, I have to do it. It's I want to do it. I want to live a life that's pleasing to him because I love him because he first loved me. I have a relationship with the living God. The analogy that he uses is something Jews, Greeks, Romans could all understand because every one of them had a coming-of-age ceremony in their culture. Jews have the bar mitzvah. That's if you're a boy at age 13, you become a son of the commandment, bar mitzvah. You are accountable to the law of God on your own. You have the capacity of reason and self-determination. And now you act as an adult, adult member of the Jewish community able to read and expound on and understand the law of the Old Testament. Age 13 for a boy, age 12 for a girl. They recognize girls mature in almost every way faster than boys do. So at age 12, the bat mitzvah, age 13, the bar mitzvah. That is a coming of age, a rite of passage. Most cultures have a rite of passage. It's sort of foreign to us because, and it's tragic, most Americans don't have a true rite of passage, a coming of age ceremony. Other cultures do. We're sort of ambiguous. When did you turn from kid into a more mature or adult child? A mature child. When do you do that in America? When I first got drunk, man. (laughs) Or some lame ritual that we have concocted in our secular society. But the Greeks, the Romans, the Jews all had an established coming of age where you go from a young child to the status of an heir, of a son or a daughter that is more mature. Now, how do we change our nature? How do we come into maturity? If you were to ask the legalists, the religionists, the Judaizers who had infiltrated this church at Galatia, they would say, you become mature by keeping all of the laws of Moses and being circumcised. Paul is saying, what, are you kidding? All that does is put a bar over the beast, a cage over the beast. That doesn't make you go forward. You're actually going backward. You're not graduating into mature relationship, doing something because you want to to please the Lord. You're still doing it because you have to do it. So all you're doing by keeping the laws of Moses and forcing circumcision, this religious ritual, is putting people in bondage like a tiger would be put in a cage. A pilot who had been flying the airplane from one part of the country to another announced to the passengers this message. He said, our navigator has lost our position And we've been flying rather aimlessly for over an hour. 
That's the bad news. But the good news is we're making very good time. That's what religion can do. You'll be flying around and around and around, going forward, going backward, not knowing really where you're going, but you're making good time doing it, and you feel really good about it. Verse 1. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is the master of all. But he is under the guardians and the stewards until the time appointed by the father. Picture a young kid. Oh, I don't know, five, six years old. He's the heir of a great, rich estate. His parents are going to give all of this to him. He's going to grow up one day and be a multimillionaire. But right now he's still a little kid. He's immature. He can't articulate well. He doesn't know his words, his thoughts in a mature manner. He can't handle the privilege nor the responsibility that comes with the estate. So, Paul says he is under, verse 2, guardians and stewards until the time appointed by his father. Guardians and stewards, a couple thousand years ago, were slaves that were owned by a household who were in charge of the development of a child, the management of the child's future, much like the tutor back in chapter 3 that we read, the law was a tutor. So, the guardians, the stewards, and the tutor, these three had, as slaves, complete charge of a child's future. Meaning, the heir, the child, who is going to one day rule the estate, is really no different for all practical purposes from the slave. In fact, you might say the slave has an edge because he's the one giving orders and direction to the child who will be the heir of the estate. So you have a child who has absolutely no freedom at all. They get to order him around, they get to direct him, until the father sets the date for his emancipation. It was a set time, it was the coming of age ceremony, and the father would make a statement, my child is now an adult son, a mature, responsible adult. Now, there's an underlying theme here. It's the theme of spiritual growth. Spiritual growth. Peter said to the church, grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Paul here would be saying, grow up, man. Grow up, Galatians. Grow up from needing to be supervised in every little step by some religious parameters that are given you to becoming somebody who relates freely in a relationship with God. My favorite door in our old home was the pantry door. It's all marked up. Nathan, when he was six years old and seven years old and eight years old and 16 years old, six feet tall. Some of his friends, they came over and we compared them and marked them to see his growth pattern. I love it. It's exciting. And you look at it and say, look at the growth in such a short period of time, how he's just shot up. You and I ought to be able to look back on our Christian life and say, look how I've grown. 
Are you a more mature Christian tonight than you were a year ago, five years ago, when you first came to know the Lord? Is there that steady maturing process? Are you bound by something, either still something of the sin nature or even something like a religious system? The message of God to us tonight would be, let's grow up. Christian life begins by birth. Isn't that what Jesus said? Nicodemus, you must be born again. There's a spiritual regeneration or a birth. But that's just the beginning. And I know we get all excited, as I do. We should always get excited whenever somebody comes to faith in Christ, raises a hand, comes forward. We're excited. Spiritual life is there. That's evangelism. But we ought to get very excited, perhaps even a bit more excited when we see maturity. That's what John said. I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. I love it. I love when I see somebody who's come to faith in Christ, like Sebastian, who was with me tonight, sharing in the ministry. He came to faith in Christ. He had a hunger for the Lord. He went to the school of ministry. He got married. He has a child. He went off and went to the mission field, came back, and just this steady growth. I have no greater joy than to see my children walk in truth. And so there ought to be growth. One of the marks of an infant is that they are regulated by their emotions, their affections, rather than their understanding. If you have kids or you've raised kids, you know this to be true. Kids are easily excited. Things wow them quickly. Wow! They get all stoked and they show their emotion. But they're also easily angered, governed by their emotions, their affections. They get mad really quickly. They throw a tantrum quite easily. And they also get scared easily. And so do immature believers, infant Christians. I don't know if I'm saved. I was yesterday, but I don't think I am today. Maybe I'm going to miss the rapture of the church. I remember I had that fear as a young Christian. I walked into a Bible study. I've told you this before. It was to be scheduled to begin at 7 o'clock. It was in the summer, so the sun was still out. And I walked into the room, and there were Bibles all around in a circle, glasses of water, even coats, car keys, all in a circle. The stove was boiling. The water was going through the kettle, and nobody was there. And I walked in, and my heart sunk. I fell down to my knees, and I thought, God, what did I do wrong? I thought of every little sin and thought I might have committed that day because I was convinced I missed the rapture. They were all out back watching an airplane do stunts. <laughs> and they came inside and they said, what's wrong with you? <laughs> it is the baby Christians that are worried about demons. They see more of the power of Satan to destroy than the power of God to deliver. Governed by their emotions, governed by their affections, going up and down. And because of that, they're easy prey for the devil. Remember, Paul put it this way in Ephesians. He said, we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. 
the Galatians were going back to the cage. They were becoming like little children governed by their emotions, being carried about by every wind of doctrine. There's a second mark of an immature or baby believer, and that is they cry for themselves. They're selfish. They're self-oriented. You rarely see a child crying for somebody else feeling great empathy and being heartbroken because some life is destroyed or somebody has done something. It's usually for themselves. What about me, man? What about my needs? And a third mark of a child, to speak really to Paul's point here, is they need lots of rules, parameters, the bars of the cage. They need that to keep them going down the right path. They can't just, you can't just take a child, put them on the porch and say, grow up. You need to give form, function, standards, rewards, discipline, etc. for that child to mature. Now at the same time, while we want maturity, it's awfully exciting to have a baby around the house. It's great, great fun, it's enjoyable. You know, there's, there is that excitement. And after you have a child, you think, oh man, we want more. Isn't it great? You can't even imagine yourself as a parent without a child. Some of my fondest memories are the antics of my son. We have a picture that I wish I would have been there that day. Lenya took it, but it's a picture of Nathan wearing a plant on his head. And, and he had taken this plant and, and he had pulled the, the long string of the leaves that came down, one of those uh, vine plants, pulled it off of the top shelf. It came crashing down on the floor and he took it and, and put it on his head and walked down the hallway. What an exciting day that was. At the same time, though it's exciting to see that fervor in the immaturity, we don't expect a child to stay immature. Now, do we? Don't we want them to grow up? Wouldn't it be a tragedy if as a 30-year-old, your child came home, knocked on the door, and went, Dada. You go, what is up with you? Or can you imagine a nurse in a hospital holding a 20-year-old? Well, this guy was born here. He just likes it here. That would be a tragedy. It wouldn't be a joy any longer. And so there is the need to grow, to move beyond the bars of the cage, to have the nature of the tiger changed so there can be a freedom. And the freedom here is of a relationship. Verse 3, he says, Even so we, spiritually speaking, we Christians, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. Now, this is what I think he's thinking of and talking about. We, I think Paul specifically refers to we Jews, we Jewish believers, because he makes a difference here between you and we. He's a rabbi, remember. Most of the Galatians were Gentiles, non-Jews, but some of them were Jewish, and there was this group of Jewish legalists who were telling people, well, you've got to be very religious and keep the law and be circumcised. So Paul is saying, even so, we Jewish, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. Now, what does that mean, elements? Well, it's the same word, notice, that's in verse 9. And I think it helps explain what elements means. Look at verse 9 and 10, skip down. But now, after you have known God, or rather, are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements 
to which you desire again to be in bondage. You observe days and months and seasons and years. The word elements means the elemental things, the foundational things like the letters of an alphabet. Now let me give you the NSV of this verse, the new skip version. This is how I would translate this. We were once like little kids governed by the ABCs of human religion. We kept rules and regulations and days and observations, ceremonies, and it felt good whenever we did. I went to church today. I'm spiritual. I'm righteous. I kept that law. And we pat ourselves on the back, sort of like a little kid doing a homework assignment. It makes us feel good. We've attained to something. The point Paul is making is, folks, it's time to graduate from slavishly following parameters like a child from religion to relationship, from slavery to sonship. That's what needs to happen. Verse 4, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, that is adult, mature sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. In verse 4, I think Paul is speaking in an historical sense. The world was like a little child in need of the tethering that a religion could offer. Now, let me just straighten out something for you. We, we talk about world religions. And, and if you took a course in college, they would no doubt refer to Christianity as a religion, a Western religion. Of course, they're wrong on both accounts. It's neither Western, it's Middle Eastern, and it's not a religion. It is indeed a relationship. There's only one religion God ever gave to man. That was Judaism. He didn't give three or four or eight or ten. He gave one religion, and that was Judaism. And that was a set of parameters and animal sacrifices and laws, the covenant that God gave to Moses, to tether our old sinful nature, to keep it in check until Christ would come. And Paul is simply saying religion had its heyday. A new time has come. A new thing has come. A precise time God sent the Messiah. So, again, the NSV, the New Skip Version, it used to be religion time, it's now Jesus time. It's a relationship. It's a relationship. That's maturity. It's not slavery, it's sonship. Now, he says, when the fullness of the time had come, Jesus came at just the right time. Paul here calls it the fullness of the time. The way the Greek words it, and I'm not going to get too much into it because it just would bog it down, but the idea is that everything was set up just perfectly and the time was matchless. It was the precise time that God had in mind for Jesus to come. You know when Jesus came, the time was right religiously. There was a yearning among religionists of Jesus' day. Jews yearned for the Messiah to come. Greeks, Romans, uh, historians tell us that there was an emptiness 
in the polytheism of 2,000 years ago. Right around the time of Christ, during that first century, this yearning for some new change was written about by historians. We want something different, man. That old Roman religion, that old Greek religion doesn't satisfy. It was the right time culturally. The world was more unified than ever before. There was a common language, Greek. There were Jewish synagogues all over the world so that if you were a Jew, you could speak the same language and travel from place to place. So if you were a preacher of the gospel like Paul, you could go anywhere and find a synagogue in the known world, and that would be a base of sharing the gospel to the Jew first, then the Greek, in almost any part of the Roman Empire. Third, it was the right time politically. The Roman Empire was at its height. Roman roads were built. This was a new deal, because now you could traverse the Roman Empire freely. There were Roman guards stationed at the major intersections of the Roman roads around the world so that you could have a protected and free way to travel. You had a unified culture and language. You had the Pax Romana, the Roman peace that allowed the gospel to move freely. And fourth, it was the right time prophetically. Prophetically. The Jewish nation always has believed in the Messiah. The Jewish prayer, I believe in the coming of the Messiah, and even though he tarry, I will wait for him every coming day. But again, historians tell us that this expectation of this guy, this deliverer, this Messiah, reached its zenith at the first half of the first century A.D. when Jesus came. One of the reasons is there was a scripture. Let me just allude to it. Maybe you want to write it down and and chase it down. Look it up later on. It's in Genesis 49. It's a prophecy given by a dad to a son, Jacob to one of his 12 sons, Judah. And there's these interesting little nuggets that this old guy drops on his kids while he's on his deathbed. And he says to Judah, the scepter or the right to rule the right to have sovereign authority over over the tribe. The scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. That's a strange thing to say, but almost every commentator, every rabbi said, Shiloh is the Messiah. It refers to the coming Messiah. Because the word Shiloh means the one to whom it belongs. And the scepter is the right to rule and to impose the laws of Moses over the tribes of Israel, and so we'll have that freedom until the Messiah comes. There was a problem right around the first part of the first century when the Romans took over the world and took away the Jews' right down in Judah, the southern kingdom where Jerusalem is, took away the right to impose capital punishment for a capital crime committed. The Jews always had that right. It was the right of the scepter, the right to rule, They could impose Jewish law, and part of that was capital punishment for a capital crime. The Romans took it away and greatly restrained their freedom. The Jewish Talmud records that when that happened, the rabbis, the Sanhedrin, the big wigs of the Jewish religion, marched around Jerusalem and said, the scepter has departed from Judah, but the Messiah, Shiloh, has not come. 
In other words, God has forsaken us. He hasn't kept his promise. Little did they know that, oh, about 30 miles north in a little town of Nazareth, there was a little boy being trained by his stepfather Joseph in carpentry. He was about to lay down his tools and reveal himself to the Jewish nation. Shiloh had come. It was the exact time when the fullness of the time had come. Listen, Christian, God is never late. He's always on time. He's not ahead of his time. He's not behind the times. He's precisely on time. I know that you've been in situations where you've thought, God, where are you? He was there before you got there. And he knows what he's doing, and his timing is impeccable. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So Jesus came at the right time, Paul is saying. Jesus was the right person for the job. God sent forth his son. By the way, isn't that an interesting wording, construction? God sent forth his son. It suggests preexistence. To send forth somebody from your presence on a mission is what the word literally means. So it suggests that Jesus pre-existed before he came into the world. And it's true, Jesus was the only one who ever lived before he was born. He was in the bosom of the Father, the Bible said. God sent him forth. That's the incarnation. It's when the second person of the Trinity becomes the Son of God. And Paul says he is born of a woman, born under the law. That speaks of his deity and his humanity. He's born of a woman. Didn't say he was born of a man. It takes two, we know that. But Mary was a virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit. Jesus was literally born of a woman conceived by the Spirit. But he was also born under the law as a Jewish male who was circumcised, who was bar mitzvahed. So you have this unique person, fully God, fully man, the perfect redeemer, the right time, the right person for the job. And why was he the right person? Because being born of a woman, he was sinless. The bloodline passed on from the male didn't infect Jesus because Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus was the perfect man, the God-man, not a good man, the God-man. So on the cross, with arms outstretched, with one hand he could take a hold of God the Father, and with the other hand he could take hold of fallen humanity and become the bridge and bring those two parties together for reconciliation. Then Jesus came for the right reason, verse 5 and 6, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons, and because you are sons, not slaves, but sons. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. You see the word redeem? Key word. You may want to circle it or underline it. It means to buy back. It's used of somebody going to the slave market and purchasing a slave in order to set that slave free, to give that slave his or her freedom. And so imagine somebody going in, I'll pay you 5000 bucks for that guy. He buys them, and then he says, now leave. My gift to you is your freedom. 
I am buying you in order that you might experience absolute freedom. I'm not going to hold you. I'm not going to tether you any longer. So to redeem those who were under or controlled by the law, the cage, that we might receive the adoption as sons. What kind of a father, somebody might ask, would give his son to be killed? I've had unbelievers say that. You Christians in your bloody religion. What kind of a God would allow his only son to be butchered and brutalized and bloodied? Only a father who wants to redeem you, to give you your freedom. So Jesus, the perfect man who ever lived, who lived the perfect life you could never live and die an atoning death for you, could by that act buy you and set you free? This is part of the Christmas story, and we're getting into the Christmas season officially after tomorrow. It's funny, you know, I think Christmas starts, what, in August now? That's when all the decorations go up and Christmas sales go out. But officially, the Christmas season, I think, is from Thanksgiving on. The side of the Christmas story that is never told is this side. He came in order to redeem. Think about that. Oh, we love the nativities, little baby Jesus, and we sing all the songs, and I say we, the world. But what about the rest of the story? Oh, it's a cute little baby in the manger, baby Jesus, but those sweet little hands were fashioned in order to bear spikes through them. Those cuddly little feet and toes were made and fashioned to walk up a hill to bear a cross on Calvary. And that tender little head, and there's nothing like a baby's head, the way it feels and smells, was made to bear a crown of thorns. You see, and that's the problem of celebrating Christmas. People love baby Jesus. The problem is they just don't want him to grow up. Keep him a baby, they say. Let's just every year celebrate the babiness, the babyhood of Jesus. Hey, that baby came into the world to grow up, to become an adult, to die for the sins of the world in order to set you free and establish a relationship of mature sonship and daughtership with you. There was a family who decided to look at the Christmas lights in their town. They drove all over town and looked at all the decorations. They went to one church. There was a beautiful nativity set, and Grandma said, Isn't that wonderful? Look, what a beautiful nativity set. Everyone's in place. The animals are there, the stars overhead. And the little girl said, Well, it is pretty mommy, but something bothers me. Isn't Jesus ever going to grow up? He's the same size this year as he was last year. They had seen that nativity set before. In many people's hearts, Jesus is the same size every year. The truth of the Christmas story is that he came to redeem. That's the right reason. In order to buy us back, and God places us in his family as children. Now notice it says, and because you are sons, God has sent forth, this is important, the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. How many have been to Israel? Raise your hands. Remember in Israel hearing the term that little children say to their fathers when they want to say, Daddy, Daddy, they go, Abba, Abba. Abba is the diminutive Hebrew or Aramaic term for Daddy, Papa. Papa. 
It is a word Paul chose specifically to highlight intimacy of relationship. Not father figure, almighty, transcendent God. (laughs) Now don't get me wrong, God is almighty, God is transcendent, and we should be careful to honor him and revere him and not become too familiar, you know, by, you know, he's my buddy boy. Oh no, he's almighty God. But the point of Paul is almighty God wants the kind of relationship with you where you can call him Papa, Daddy. You can have an intimacy. He has placed you in his family as a son. Therefore, you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So from slave to son to the status of inheritance, of being an heir. How? By adoption. You know what adoption is. Adoption is we take somebody who's not naturally born in your family, who's outside of your family, and you confer upon them the status of sonship, daughtership. That's what God has done because of Jesus Christ, his only son, in paying the price. But then indeed, we close with these verses, you did not know God. You serve those which by nature are not God's, But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and the beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. God's purpose for us was redemption. So then why go backwards? Picture the tiger once again. Let's throw that tiger up on the screen maybe once again. You can deal with the nature of the tiger one of two ways. Tethering it or changing it. Holding it back by a cage, by bars, or changing the very nature of the tiger itself so it doesn't become an attack animal, a predator. It's docile, it's changed. You and I can be changed by redemption. Redemption ought to change us. God confers a brand new nature and says, I'm adopting you and you and you and you. You'll be my child. You'll be my son. You'll be my daughter. That's what the Christian life is. The Christian life is a life of sons and daughters, not slaves. That's why I asked the question to Stacy, what age did it change from I have to to I want to? I have to go to church, I have to read my Bible, I have to pray, I have to smile and act spiritual. To, I want to because I love him, I have a relationship with him. Have you heard of John Newton? No, he didn't invent the Fig Newtons. John Newton wrote a song that you're familiar with, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. Did you know that he was a slave trader in England? He was raised as a child in a Christian home. His parents died. He went out to sea, got involved in the Portuguese and Spanish slave trade down there off the coast of Africa. Eventually became a slave himself. A few years later, in utter desperation, almost wanting to kill himself, he cried out to God. God saved him. He came back to England and he wrote the song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. He was so 
changed by that redemption that over the mantle of his fireplace in his house were inscribed upon it the words of Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 15, where the Bible says this to the children of Israel, You shall remember that you were once slaves in the land of Egypt, but the Lord your God is the one who redeemed you. Imagine coming home and seeing that every day. You were slaves, but now you are set free. I bought you and set you free. And that man was changed. Are you changed? Is it just the tethering of religion? Is it the the bars of the cage that just make you feel good by keeping those parameters? Or has God changed the beast, giving you a new nature, a hunger for spiritual things, so you relate to him as your Abba, your father? 